John Lester, starting pitcher for the Chicago Cubs, for years has battled with something that baseball players call the yips. You see, John Lester can throw from the mound to home plate at 97 miles per hour with pinpoint accuracy, but when he's faced with throwing to first base, unable to do so. My Angelou once admitted, I've written 11 books, but each time I think, uh-oh, they're going to find out now. I've run a game on everybody, and they're going to find me out. There's even something that a lot of high achievers suffer from. It's called this imposter syndrome. They're so worried that they're going to be found out as a fraud or incompetent. All this doubt that's present in their minds just cripples them. And the truth is that whatever form it takes, it's something that we really have to deal with. My name is Patrick Dawson. I'm an elder here at ACC. And this morning, we're going to wrap up our Hurt Hope series with the topic of self-doubt, when you're your own worst enemy. More specifically, we'll dive into um, what is self-doubt and then how can we respond to it appropriately when it takes a foothold in our thoughts. So first, I'd like for us to think about what is doubt. Now, I want you to think about doubt as the re-examination of our trust or confidence in something or someone. The re-examination of our trust or confidence in something or someone. Can I really do this? Doubt. Will this rope really hold me? Doubt. Will this parachute actually open? Doubt. Hopefully you've never experienced that one. So the, then if we apply that to self-doubt, it's the re-examination and confidence of ourself. Do we trust ourselves? Are we confident in ourselves? Are you able to relate with that? Are we able to relate with some of the earlier examples? Now, I don't think we have any Chicago Cubs in the audience, but perhaps you can. Or maybe you've experienced stage fright. Maybe you've questioned your abilities or what you should do with your life or just felt inadequate. When we look more closely at these forms of doubt, we can find that they fall into three general categories. Doubting our value or abilities. Doubting our purpose. And doubting whether we're worthy of love or acceptance. So what's the problem with self-doubt? I mean, why did we include it in this Hurt Hope series? Well, the problem is that most commonly when we're experiencing self-doubt, it creates a void, a feeling of inadequacy that we look to fill in some way. And unfortunately for some of us, we look to the world to fill that void rather than the fulfillment that we find in Christ. So we may seek approval from others. We may look for a promotion or status at work, more money, newer possessions. Even relationships can sometimes exist to fill the void and help us to feel complete. It's the, if I only had blank, then everything would be all right type of mindset that puts us on a perpetual course of unfulfilling idolatry. Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10 says this, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. 
but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. So it's pretty clear that God has no patience for idolatry. And frankly, neither should we. The ultimate reason and the purpose that we are created is to give glory to God. But when we have an idol, those other things or other people are directing our attention, our energy, and trust away from God. In other words, we're elevating them to a higher priority than we're holding God. And when we think of examples of idolatry, we often think of these physical idols or other gods. But nowadays, our idolatry is much harder to see. It takes those forms that we talked about, whether it's money or possessions or relationships, but the most common today, self-idolatry. You see, self-idolatry is this inward focus, this undivided attention that we give our desires while being conveniently deaf to God's desires for us. Therefore, elevating ourselves to the position of our own God. It's a pretty big deal. Another common pitfall of self-doubt is just inaction, not seeing through on God's will for us. Now, while this may not seem like a big deal, when it results in our, f- our failure to accomplish God's will for us, that's pretty big. I want you to think about the parable of the talents. So this rich man, he's preparing for a long journey. He takes bags of silver and he gives them to his servants. And he entrusts them with this. When he returns, he's expecting a return on his investment. But he comes to find out that one of his servants buried it in the ground, did nothing with it. Here's what the servant said when he was questioned by his furious master. He said, I was afraid I would lose your money. Doubt. He lost confidence and trust in himself, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. He doubted his ability to increase his master's money in spite of the fact that his master entrusted it with him originally. So you see, doubt is not something to just cough at. It requires our attention to prevent it from taking these, um, this foothold in our thoughts and then causing these dangerous pitfalls for us. But what about when our doubt and our self-doubt starts to find its way into our spiritual life and our spiritual journey? Maybe you've experienced this, whether it's doubting your value to God the purpose that he has for you, or whether you're really worthy of his love. I know that I have. I've I've experienced all of those questions at some point in my faith journey, especially early on. That's difficult to work through. I remember thinking, doubting whether I was really worthy of being saved, or was I really saved to begin with? Or could God really use somebody like me? Unfortunately for us, there's plenty of examples of doubt in the Bible that we can refer to when we're dealing with these challenges. So this first one, am I really worthy of being saved? This falls into those categories of doubting our value and doubting our love, our worthiness of love. The truth is there's tons of examples of People in the Bible that doubted their worthiness of love and for seemingly valid reasons. But time and time again, God showed up. 
with his grace and forgiveness. Prime example is the thief on the cross. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself, and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God? Even when you have been sentenced to die, we deserve to try to die for our crimes. But this man has done, hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. You see, he identifies that he's completely a sinner, deserving of the punishment that he's receiving. But he's also completely unable to do anything else. He's taking his last breath, hanging next to Jesus. He's not able to go volunteer or give more money or feed the poor. He's not able to do any of that. His hope and confidence for salvation is completely dependent on God's grace and forgiveness and his faith for accepting. So you see, there's nothing that we can do on our own to become worthy of being saved. But luckily, God showed up. And it's through his grace that then we are made worthy of being saved. Ephesians 2 says, But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So you see, we're deserving of punishment. We're sinful. We're not deserving of heaven. But we are made worthy of being saved through God's grace and our belief in Christ. So in the answer to the question, none of us are deserving of heaven on our own accord. So are you worthy of God's grace? God thinks so. Isn't that all that matters? And it's only due to God's abundant love and grace and Christ's death and resurrection that heaven is made possible for us. And don't you just love that last verse? That God considers you his masterpiece? Next question. Am I really saved? Again, this falls into those categories of value and love. So what do we know about being saved? I want to direct your attention to Romans 10. It says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. 
They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's pretty clear cut, pretty simple. Believe in your heart, call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. So if it's that clear, and we know this to be true, then I have to then question, why are we asking this? Why are we doubting this? So is your doubt going back to that first question of your worthiness to be saved? Or is it because you've been sinning in ways that you know you shouldn't? And it's gut check time. I know that when I've struggled with this question, it's because I haven't been obedient. And I've struggled through sin. And so what I found is that a better question for me was not, am I really saved? It was, what am I doing? So we know that we're saved by grace, but this acting out our faith, this putting it into practice, it's hugely important. Because we can't be like the the servant in the parable. We have to put it into action. Philippians 2 says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So what does this working out our faith look like? Well, luckily Paul gives us some insight to it just a little before. He says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. It's a pretty tall task. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So we're called to be tender-hearted and compassionate, to agree with each other, to love one another, to work together with one mind and purpose, to not be selfish, to not impress others, to think of others as better than ourselves and to look out for their interests, and to have a Christ-like attitude. You see, that Christ-like attitude is our journey towards sanctification. So when you believe in Christ, then you're put on this path towards holiness, becoming like Christ. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by that one offering... He forever made perfect those who are being made holy. There's two tenses in there. He forever made perfect. That already happened. It was accomplished when Christ died and was, and was risen again. But we're being made holy. So God accepts that this is a process. That that's not something that just happens immediately. And he also accepts that there's missteps that happen along this way of our faith journey. Even Paul can identify with those missteps. He said, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. 
Instead, I do what I hate. So it's important for us to realize that the failures of our faith are not indicators of an absence of faith. I believe, help me with my unbelief. Those two things exist at the same time. It's not an either or. Your failures of your faith are not indicators of your absence of faith. So if you can identify with this, if you've doubted your salvation because you've continued to sin, see it as an opportunity. See it as a prompting by the Holy Spirit on on your heart that you need to reevaluate things. You need to reexamine your life and make some changes. Are you depending on your strength to resist temptation? Or are you looking to God for the desire and the power to do what's right? Last question regarding purpose. Can God really use me? Ask Paul, who persecuted Christians. Or David, the scrawny teenager. Or Rahab, the prostitute. Moses, the shepherd with low self-confidence. Abraham and his elderly wife, Sarah. The list goes on. Guys, our God loves an underdog. Because it brings him glory. Just when God's people are down for the count and seemingly forgotten, God shows up, he works through them, and accomplishes something even more amazing than any of them could have imagined. So here's a question for you. If you're facing this question, can God really use me? What if that's Satan's last-ditch effort before God does something amazing with you? What if your doubt of your purpose and whether God can really use you is Satan's last-ditch effort? So is doubt sinful? Well, as we talked about, it takes three common forms— Doubting our value and abilities, doubting our purpose, and doubting our worthiness of love or of acceptance. And when experiencing self-doubt, it can often lead to pitfalls such as inaction or idolatry. So it's not so much whether or not we have thoughts of self-doubt, but how we respond to it and what we do with it that can sometimes then lead to the potential of sin. And unfortunately, if not addressed or appropriately managed, can lead to denial, unbelief, or even worse, a slow, unassuming drift away from God. But if handled correctly, doubt can lead to spiritual growth. So how, how do we do this? How do we respond to doubt in this way that then produces spiritual fruit? Well, first we need to acknowledge it. We have to identify it. We have to call it out. It's okay It's okay to have questions. Maybe you want to sit down with somebody and share with them, like, hey, I'm really doubting this. I'm really struggling with this. And chances are you're going to find a lot of people that have struggled with the same thing. The second thing is we need to remind ourselves of God's truth and seek greater understanding through Scripture and through prayer. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. So you see, God has equipped us. God has given us all the tools, all the weapons, all the armor that we need for the spiritual battle. But you got to put it on. It does you no good sitting next to you. Big deal. We have to equip ourselves. We have to put that armor on. And finally, I would encourage you when you're experiencing those, those times of self-doubt is to reaffirm your faith and belief in Christ. To remind yourself of God's grace and his abundant love for you. His masterpiece. Remind yourself of how valuable you are to him that he sent his son down to earth to become a slave and die on the cross for you. And that you have a greater purpose as a child of God than anything that something in the world might try to attempt to fill. I mean, it's absolutely amazing that we're loved wholly, completely by an all-powerful God. Especially in spite of our faults. He doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't talk negatively about you behind your back. He doesn't compare you to others. God loves you because God loves. Not only does he love you, but he treats you as a treasured possession. And that's not like a, like a, like an owning. It's like a keeping and protecting. When you accepted Christ, you were born to a new race, a race destined for heaven. But while we're saved by grace, we're expected to also work out our faith. Doing works that bring honor and glory to God. So God has entrusted you with a unique set of gifts and talents. Don't bury them in the sand. Put them to use and bring glory to him. So it's important for us to remember that our, our weight, our position at work, our possessions, and yes, even our ability to throw to first base have no bearing on whether or not we are allowed to enter heaven and spend eternity with God. So over the last few weeks, Dave and Chris and Mike have helped us to come to terms with these many forms of suffering that we experience in our life, in our world, and how we can respond to them in ways that are healthy, both spiritually and emotionally. And as I reviewed these teachings, I found that there were some common themes within them. Well, the first one is this. When you attempt to handle these or seek hope for deliverance from them solely on your own, it's a spiritual dead end. It's hopeless. But each of their points also referred back to the truths of God, his power, his compassion, his grace, his mercy, and his love for you. You see, this is the perfect example of God for us to go through this series and talk about these different forms of hurt and suffering and for us to be able to summarize all of that back to the same similar points. What that means is that God is God and that Christ's work on the cross was complete. 
Because if we couldn't apply all those things to these different forms of suffering, then I can understand your question. I could understand why you could doubt that. Then maybe Christ didn't accomplish all that he meant to on the cross. You see, if we were meant to then have to try and put together the recipe for each of these individual sufferings, it would drive us mad. But that's not what it is. We can turn back with hope to each of these truths. And you can find peace and comfort throughout those sufferings. So if we allow that suffering to, to take a strong foothold within our hearts and minds, we do eventually come to questioning God's deity. Now, of course, there will be different steps and courses of action for those different sufferings, but our responses should always start and end with God. I want to leave you with this quote by Francis Chan. He says, God delights to show up when his children call on his name and when they are trusting him fully to come through, whether that is in relationships, in battling sin, in strength to make sacrifices, or in endurance to be faithful in daily life. God delights in that opportunity to be there for you in the midst of your hurt. Will you pray with me? Loving and gracious God, we acknowledge that you are Lord, that you're above all, that you have the power to do amazing things beyond our belief and imagination. But Lord, we acknowledge that when life gets tough, when we're hurting, we don't always look to you for that comfort and peace. That we often forget who you are and whose we are. That not only do you love us and pour out your abundant grace to us, but Lord, that you treat us as a treasured possession, as your masterpiece. Lord, I pray for our congregation that in those times of suffering, that not only would we be there for each other to comfort and console and offer encouragement, but Lord, that we would start and end with you. That our pursuit of relief or deliverance or hope, that it all leads back to you. Lord, this morning we surrender all of our hurt. We remind ourselves of your truths. That Christ did accomplish all that he intended to on the cross. And that you love us completely. We lift this up to you in your son's powerful name. Amen.